Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest. Of course, all of my guests are special, but I am super excited to be talking to Australia's first Marie trained organizational coach, and that is Sally Flower. Welcome, Sally. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to be here. Well, thank you so much because I am truly excited. And as we were saying before, I was really sorry to have missed you last February. I know you were were a, a keynote speaker at a large clothes swap event in Melbourne, and I was hoping to get there, but I couldn't quite make it. Yeah, it was such a great event. I was actually so surprised how excited people were to swap and share their clothes because so often we have had this previous thought that sharing clothes and swapping and buying secondhand was a bit daggy, but now it's become such a cool thing and that clothes swap was awesome. I loved it. Well, I'm like I said, I'm very sorry to have missed it. I host uh, clothes swaps semi-regularly with a group of girlfriends and it is, it's just so lovely. Like it's actually not so much about the clothes as as much about the connection. It's Mm. just such a buzz when something that you've had that you've really liked but just hasn't been right for you, that you give it to someone else and they just emerge from your bathroom or the dressing room and they're just (laughs) totally transformed. Yeah, I'm actually sitting next to you. I was going to put this cardigan on that my girlfriend gave me because we were doing the similar thing, a slow clothes swap. And I love it. And she just, it didn't really feel great on her. And I love it. So it's really perfect way that you kind of connect and share. It's good. Yeah, exactly. And I love that about how things are shifting. And I talk about this in, in my book, The Joyful Frugalista as well, that once upon a time, if someone complimented you on your outfit and it had been op shopped, you sort of, you wouldn't admit it. <laughs> Yeah. But now it's almost a badge of honour. Definitely. I think if you can find something, if you've thrifted something and you you love it, it's definitely a badge of honour. I think there's a few hashtags that are going crazy on social media like thrift finds and so forth. So, yeah, definitely. Wear it with honour. I'm going to have to check out thrift finds for sure. So let's go back to how you got into being a Marie expert. Was this always your career? And I know the answer was no, it wasn't. So what were you doing before you started on this adventure? It's kind of a crazy story, really. I moved to New York City because I wanted to grow my career in finance. I had always wanted to work in capital markets and we don't have a massive capital markets program here in Australia, especially Melbourne. A lot of it's in Sydney. I left my five-year banking career in Australia, like straight out of university, I went into finance and I moved over to the States with the intention of working in capital markets. And I did get a job and I was in New York City and working on Wall Street and it was, you know, like all New York City jobs, kind of stressful, but great at the same time. Well, it sounds super glamorous. For me sitting here in Canberra, it sounds very glamorous. (laughs) I guess it's not as glamorous probably as it sounds. Yeah, I mean, finance in New York City is is wonderful and exhilarating, but it's um, a whole completely different world from far removed from my head office at ANZ in Australia. And while I was there, New York City is this kind of place that really pushes you and it, it encourages you to do more all the time. And Marie Kondo's book had come out soft copy in the States, so I quickly bought it because I had already seen it online and loved it. And I started reading it and I was thinking, this professional organiser thing, like, is this a legit job? (laughs) If it's going to be a legit job anyway, it's going to be a legit job in New York City because people pay for everything. 
And I Googled her and she was going to be in New York City in two weeks' time. And I just went along for a bit of fun. And I walked into this room of, and there's 40 other people there, women, who had flown from all over the world to meet Marie Kondo. Like they were complete converts and they had been following her for the last 18 months and I just kind of stumbled into this world. And from there, it just really snowballed. When I came back to Australia, I was people were paying me to tidy their wardrobes because they, they'd seen me on social media and I'd met Marie Kondo. Went down to four days a week in finance in Australia so that I could progress this side hustle that I was creating. And being the kind of business-minded woman that I am, I definitely focused on building my brand rather than just kind of getting the certification. And that's really helped me in the long run because now I've built this little home sanctuary, which is a combination of Marie Kondo and mindfulness because I'm also a yogi and downsizing minimalism. And it's really become this little creature that I'm, I'm really proud of. Wow, well, it sounds like you do have a lot to be proud of there and quite a zen and interesting life. It is. I, I do miss finance, though. I think that's why I really am excited to talk to your audience today because finance is such a big part of my life still. And I love this connection between what we buy has a real connection to us because we've spent so much time and energy building our careers and building our ability to have a skill that earns money and then you want to making sure that you're using it wisely and using it in the best way that you can that also gives you joy back. Yeah that sounds very joyful. So let's talk then about (laughs) how your financial career has shaped what you do. Do you still invest yourself? How has your corporate career in finance shaped your own personal interest in, in money savings and investing? I love investing. I am a massive indexing vanguard freak. Anytime I get to save a little bit of money, I will put that into indexing because very much a long-term investor, which is me. And I think the, the finance has definitely shaped the way I see money as a tool. It's a way I don't really see it as just a way to live my life. I definitely find that money is a tool that I can build up. And if I use it wisely, it can give me back real positive things. So I found that Just being surrounded by people who are savvy about money, I don't see it as such a, I don't throw it away so easily. I'm I'm very much a bit more protective of it, but not in so much of like a tight ass kind of scenario, but more in just a way that I want to make sure that I spend it wisely and I spend it on things that give me joy. And I think this is where the KonMari and Home Sanctuary and money all kind of intertwine because it's about spending your money on things that really speak to you and make you feel good about happy of your own unique individual and less about just spending money on stuff because it's in front of you, making these conscious consumption and conscious and mindful decisions about how we spend our well-earned money is something that I really push onto my clients because I spend weekends with clients and, and days of the week just throwing away stuff that they've bought they haven't really thought about, and all of that is cash, which is really sad. Yeah, all of that is cash and it is sad. And I see it as well, Mm. you know, people that seem to be really living the high life but don't have a lot to show for it. And Yes. Yeah, and there does seem to be quite a correlation, as I'm sure you'd be aware, with people in the FIRE, financial independence, retire early movement, and those who embrace minimalist living. Is that a coincidence? I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I I have a friend who's a much better investor than me. He's been worked in capital markets for probably 10 more years than me. 
and he is so big in this fire movement and he wants to do the luxury fire so he's like saving a fat lot fire. so he can still <laughs> yeah fat fire that's it so he can still he says he still wants to be able to fly first class for his holidays I'm like okay mate I'm definitely in that movement as well and so is my partner but we not so much on the fat side of things because we really want to just have a minimal footprint on the earth as well mm. probably more me than my partner but he he's really into it too but this focus on if I can reduce my consumption on actual products that's going to limit my carbon footprint and allow me to have more time back in my week because I'm spending less and it's going to allow me to have that money that I do spend on activities and items that are less carbon intensive but also bring me a lot of joy. Mm. And so this way of making conscious decisions definitely leads into saving money. And if that's a motivator for you, I've had clients who have me come in as a motivator to save money because they don't want to go out and just buy all these organizing products. They didn't want to have me come in and kind of teach them how to use what they have. And if that's a motivator, that's a great way to kind of limit the amount of things that you buy. But there is the connection between the fire movement and minimalism is really strong. Yeah, there's so many insights there. And and I guess marketers spend a lot of money trying to teach us that buying that whatever thing equals happiness and equals joy. Yeah, I did a, I'm doing my master's in environmental science at the moment and I did a subject last year with a professor who specializes in the growth economy and consumption. And we actually are exposed to about 3,000 plus advertising messages daily. 3,000 plus. I've just had to reiterate that because it just seemed out of my comprehension. 3,000 plus. And the plus comes from the new social media movement we have with this subliminal messaging all the time. And if you have children, this is really important to think about because as kids, you don't have the ability to differentiate between what's being sold to you and what is true and correct. And so when you go into the supermarket and they're advertising the, the flashy, shiny lollies and things that they can buy, the kids don't really understand why why I wouldn't have that because they don't have a, that messaging. So there is a lot of legislation trying to work around around children's advertising. We're getting 3,000 messages daily and a lot of them are based around detriment. So the advertising is selling us a need. They're telling us that you are going to feel better if you have a faster car, that you, if you buy this organic cotton top, you're going to be a better person. You're going to sleep better if you have one of those weighted blankets. And even if you're not a bad sleeper, you instantly at them messaging and telling you that what you have now isn't good enough. So if we're always being told not good enough, not good enough, and these items to consume are then telling us that we're going to feel better, it's natural that we're going to start taking more than we need. And what we find in an affluent community like Australia, that we have a lot of money per capita per person, we're now on this affluent treadmill, which essentially means the only way for us to get happier is to feel better than our neighbour. So once upon a time, you used to just be keeping up with the Joneses. And that's changed historically from the 50s as the females in the household started to move into the working class. And then the comparison then became within your working structure. So you tend to compare less exactly the people in your street and more with the people in your peers at work. But what you find is it's a very well-known fact that you only get happier in your comparison to your peers. So once all your basic living standards are met, the only way for you to be, feel a bit happier is to be doing better than the person next to you. So what we then find in an affluent economy and a community which we have thriving in Australia is that the way that we feel better is to have more than the person next to us. 
So constantly we are going up and up and up. And all you have to do is look in our suburbs, see the size of the houses, see how many cars per person, see how many toys our kids have, and step back from that and go, whoa, this is kind of crazy. Because what's happening is Australia is consuming 1.7 amount of resources that the world can reproduce annually. Wow. So we're consuming more than the world can produce and replenish. And that's just Australia. So if all of Australia was living like we are, we're, we're already in what we call ecological overshoot, which basically means that we're consuming way too much. But Australia is the worst in the world, which is kind of hard for me to imagine really because I always feel as though Australians like good, happy, chilled out people. But the way that we consume and our negative impact on the environment is astonishing. Yeah, I, I would I would hear you there. I lived in Taiwan twice, the second time from 2010 to 2014, during the mining boom in Australia. And it was always fascinating when I was out and about in Taiwan. And Taiwan's a developed country, right? It's, it's classed mm. now as a developed country, but there is still quite a fair bit of income disparity. And you'd be somewhere and you'd go, wow, look at that really glamorous couple. They must be like from Sweden or they must be from America. They must be from France. And then they'd open their mouth and you go, oh, yeah, Aussies. And it always struck me nearly every time that the Australians seem to be the ones with the best bicycles, the best clothing when they're out and about, the best handbags. And yet we don't perceive ourselves as being extreme fashionistas. We, we don't. I think it took me, I've lived in many other countries overseas and it kind of has taken me probably all the way to New York because I thought that everyone in New York was glamorous but you know they're just normal people a lot of them are learning a a lot less than we are they're kind of living day to day and there's not I mean there are many Australians living day to day but there's also a whole group of us that aren't we don't often perceive ourselves as that but maybe because we're so far away from everyone and we kind of live on our own continent I'm not quite sure what it is I'm sure there's lots of books out there you could research it but we definitely need to open our eyes to this lifestyle that we've created for ourselves in a growth economy we need to reconsider why are we focusing so heavily on gdp and so heavily on consumption and not about health standards of both humans and the rest of our ecological environment I, and this is something that i get really worried with um, in post-covid times is that if we focus too much on growth and gdp and purchasing because GDP, a lot of it is just purchasing, right? Mm. If we focus too much on that and we're not actually focusing on how we can spread out the wealth that we already have and the skills we have to help everyone kind of lift up and feel better and happier, it's going to be a weird recovery that is not going to be long-lasting and not going to be sustainable. You're right. For so long, economic means of measuring well-being have been kind of I guess at the heart of how you can tell whether a, a country is developed or not, but it doesn't yeah. tell the whole story. I mean, there's other measures like no. the, the Gini, what is it, the Gini coefficient. Uh, yeah, Gini coefficient. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a few other happiness indexes that are really good. The Gini coefficient is probably the most well, well-known one. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it can get a bit sad if you think about it that we're, because, but it has served us so well. And I mean, the, the um, GDP was put in, you know, post-war to help everyone get better. And this consumption movement was wonderful for a long time. It helped us in, improve our efficiency and, and helped us lift so many people out of poverty. 
But we've definitely got to a point where it's no longer serving us and we need to really think about other ways that we can do that. Maybe focusing on deprivatization and supporting those, building back into mutual ways of sharing and, and, and having libraries and community spaces and gardens and parks that are shared spaces and owned by everyone. And this sharing community is really wonderful for the environment because we're not, not, not everyone has to have their own lawnmower and whippersnipper and shed. If we have an example of like a toy library or a library or a shed library or whatever is a borrowing class, a borrowing system that becomes normal will really reduce this need for everyone to have multiple tools and sheds then to store that and everyone in the street has the same river sniffer that they use once every, you know, <laughs> month. And we are seeing that happen. Like we H&M, are. Are, yeah, H&M are bringing out the borrowing line of clothes. So you go in there and you rather than buy a new dress, you borrow a new dress and you take it back. I would love to see Bunnings do something similar where they have already for some of their bigger items like trolleys and I don't know, like a bit of like if you're kind of redoing your deck or whatever. But I would love to see that for even smaller items. And I, yeah, that's, I think the borrowing community is definitely going to support us in terms of this consumption movement and deprivatization of a lot of our public spaces will, will support that too. Wow. So there's some big picture strategic things that are going on. So let's go yeah. back down to the micro. So you obviously work with individual people and households in terms of decluttering and organizing. What is it like going to someone's house and they want you to help them organize? Like what are the steps you sort of begin to work on like presumably things have come into people's life for a while and it's often they're quite attached to those things is, is that mm. that the case it is when I first started tidying in people's homes it was very nerve-wracking and uh, where I am taught Japanese trained to be very respectful and I have a very respectful personality so I would always ask people if you can open a cupboard or can I go into this drawer before I go into any client I have them kind of complete a welcome journal and I ask them why they're asking me to come in like, what are we working towards here what are we how do you want your home to feel and function what are, what drives you why have you asked me to come to help you today what are we working towards and it's really important that we get that nailed down before we start opening cupboards and getting rid of stuff because if you don't know where you're going it's really hard to get a clear direction obviously like you don't just go on walk like hardly ever go online and like I'm gonna book a holiday without some kind of thought about what you need do I want a beach holiday do I want a city holiday do I want to visit my family whatever it is you don't just go booking a flight for the sake of it you actually think about what do I need and the same thing happens when we're looking at organizing a space and that's when I ask my clients to come when I meet them do they want to make more space for their kids to play do they want to be able to relax more easily are they downsizing because they're moving home? Are they arguing with their partners and they need to kind of sort that out? Are they finding they can't sleep at night? Do they want to be able to cook more? Whatever it is, we kind of tease that out of them and then we create a little mantra and then we work towards that. And in the KonMari method, we take everything out of our cupboards and drawers and we work in categories because categories helped us, our brains, to make decisions a bit better. It's a lot easier to make a decision around a like-minded object. And then I support them to make the decisions about putting away. And that question you said earlier about people are very attached to their items, that's probably the hardest part is working through with people around those attachments and why they're attached to it. 
And sometimes it's me coaching them and saying to them, it's totally okay to be attached to that. <laughs> Own it. Like if you love that dress that you don't fit into but you love looking at it and you love the soft fabric, keep it. But if you're keeping it just because you paid too much money for it or just because it used to feel good or you want to fit back into it or you feel bad about throwing it away, let's work through those feelings because you definitely don't want your wardrobe to be full of guilt, sadness, would-haves, could-haves. Your wardrobe just needs to be a collection of items that make you feel great. It's like you curated way of dressing yourself up to be the best version of yourself and that's what I help with my clients for every space in their home it's just clearing out anything that's not working for them at this time and space and allowing them to make space to step forward into where they want to be and this is a big thing particularly with women because our bodies do change shape now I'm not saying we always get fatter sometimes people lose a lot of weight mm, but it's, it's it's how we are biologically wired really and whether or not it's because of having children it's often because of seasons and we just our bodies just do change shape do change shape so it's mm. unrealistic to think that just because something looked good on you maybe two years ago you know maybe it mightn't suit you you now maybe your bra size has gone up or down yes <laughs> It doesn't yeah, look and as it's, good. It's very, yeah, and if, and if you don't feel as good in it, but you're not, not ready to throw it away because you might feel good in it and you might you, you might go back to that size or grow into that size again, I encourage clients to just box it up and put it out of their day-to-day site. Just put it in the top cupboard or put it in the hallway cupboard, whatever it is. You don't need to have those constant reminders in front of you all the time, but it's uh, important that we definitely are keeping things that are realistic that we would get back into them or whatever. There's no need to keep things because we, they used to feel good on us. Mm, different time. And that trickles into other areas of the home too. Like you might have gone through a really big stage of like making smoothies and then now you've decided that, you know what, they don't make you feel good or I, I prefer to have a different different kind of breakfast in the morning, then I don't need all of these fancy smoothie contraptions, I can put one on Facebook market and sell it or I can make space for this new thing I'm enjoying in my life right now in the kitchen, which could be cooking with my kids or it could be that whatever it is. Our family started to love pasta making. Let's get pasta <laughs> making in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've got a pasta maker that I think I'm lucky if I bring out once a year, so I totally hear you there. <laughs> yeah. But talking about, I guess, making space and, you know, moving things on onwards, I guess like many people, I watched the Netflix series with Marie Kondo. When did that come out? About two years ago, three years ago now. And then I remember it wasn't long after the series going to an op shop and they just weren't taking any donations at all. Like everything was completely full. I think it was like an Australia-wide phenomenon. Like everyone was into decluttering. And I don't know if you've seen it, but there was quite an interesting parody of, I think it was called, I just got con married and talking about this guy Mm. saying he was driving home and found that when he arrived home, his wife had decided that the whole house didn't bring her joy, so everything was in plastic bags. And then they sort of had this parody of them. It wasn't real, but, you know, this parody of them throwing garbage bags into this big ditch and because nothing brought them joy, uh, so they're all decluttering. How close to the truth is some of this? Unfortunately, it's really close to the truth. And, and this is – it was the driver for me to do a Master's in Environmental Science and Climate Change, actually, because I feel – some of the time, this new organising movement that we've created and now they're churning out Comoro consultants like personal trainers now. And it's really, we're not treating the problem, we're just treating the symptom. 
the symptom is we have stuff that isn't making us happy, but we're not really stopping to say, why? Why have we got all this stuff anyway? <laughs> why, why is it not making us happy? <laughs> and the reason is that kind of advertising we, we were talking about earlier. But the other important thing is that we haven't taken time to be like, what does bring us joy? Like, what am I working towards here? Like, what, where, me right now in my current stage of life, what makes me feel good and what am I working towards? And how do I cultivate more of that in my life? And as a master coach and home sanctuary expert, this is kind of what I do with my clients. It's as much life coaching as it is kind of decluttering because if you, depending on the headspace on that day, you could be throwing everything out. And and believe me, I have done this. I've made all the mistakes. (laughs) I've thrown out so much stuff that I have been sad about throwing it away. And I actually dropped off some stuff at an op shop for my client of the other week. And the guy said to me, he's like, do you want to take a second check in the bag? He's like, happens all the time. People come back and ask for it. All the time people go back and say, I wish I didn't donate that. It's really important when we're letting go of things that we do it in a really happy, positive mindset. You don't want to be decluttering when you're tired, sad, like, or emotional. (laughs) They're not good times to be decluttering. This idea that op shops are then going to A, need our stuff, Mm -hmm. B, make lots of money from it, and C, save it from landfill is a little bit of a fallacy because we know that $3 million per annum is spent by Australian charities to throw donated items in landfill. $3 million of donated money is spent to throw our stuff in landfill that we gave to op shops because People aren't buying as much from op shops as are being given. And this is something I also work with my clients to say that gone are the times when you donate stuff because a poorer member in your community can't afford it. We now have a global economy with efficiencies, whether it's a positive thing or not, allowing us to make consumer goods at such a low price that almost everyone in our society has access to excess. Everyone can buy a lot. Everyone can buy multiple pairs of jeans and t-shirts. We don't need to give them to an op shop so that people who quasi can't afford it can then afford it. That has gone. So we really need to rethink the donating and we need to rethink this secondhand economy. And we are seeing a real um, shift with the secondhand economy. We are seeing a lot more purchasing online. Facebook market has been a blessing. People are then buying and um, swapping things with each other a lot. We're also seeing a real growth in the secondhand clothing market, which coming from the States is already booming over there. And the projections are showing it's an area that's going (laughs) to grow up by up to 80%, you know, in the next 30 years. It's going to be huge, a secondhand clothes economy. I I hope so, seeing I've developed the Joyful Fashionista website. It's in its early stage. But, yeah, certainly I hear you about that. There's a huge need to move things on. And yes, disclaimer here, I have way too much. I might be frugal, but I love a bargain and I love a good op shop and I love clothes swaps. And there's a real tendency to have Bowerbird sort of instincts that I've got to curb. Yeah, I am a Bowerbird too. Anything shiny, like I'll take it. And that's we do find that if something's given to us or if it's a bargain, we think, oh, ah, that's definitely worth it. And it's really important to take a step back and be like, hang on. Is that me just telling myself that's a bargain or is that actually a bargain that's going to add value to my life? 
Yeah, especially if you don't really need it. And then I still have some yeah. things that I've got from my Buy Nothing group that I've had for years and years and I've never really used it. I remember at the time thinking, yeah. wow, this thingy thing thing is just blingy, bling, bling. It's amazing. How on <laughs> earth could someone possibly not use this? And then I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, it's in, been in my back cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens a lot. I mean, this is, you know, really, really common. So that I wouldn't be worried about that. That's a definite um, part of our society and, and us as humans as well, being little bowerbirds. Exactly. So one final question for you, which is, do you have a frugalister tip? Oh, yes, I did have a frugalister tip. I was thinking about this on my walk this morning. My frugalister tip is to have a realistic conversation with your friends and family about gift giving. Oh, gift giving. Yeah, I hear you. Because gift giving, especially for children and for even us as grown adults, sometimes feels like something that we have to do rather than something that we want to do. So having a realistic conversation with, hey, guys, maybe this Christmas let's just give each other one gift each that we know that we want or let's not give gifts and pull our money together and go to a nice restaurant or take the kids to movie world or whatever it is. And don't do it in a way that's like pushing people away and saying what they've given you in the past was terrible. Make it in a way that I'm trying to reduce my carbon footprint. I'm trying to move towards minimalism. I'm trying to be more savvy with my money post-COVID. Rather than having a tangible gift, let's do this. Giving an alternative to gift giving and having a realistic, calm, passionate conversation with your loved ones can save clutter, can save money, and can just give you more joy. Yeah, it's a hard one. In terms of my immediate really family, hard. we've had that conversation and we've all, I mean, by the time you pay for postage too, in my case, I don't have family here in mm. Canberra, or at least I don't have any of my family I've got my extended family I've got quite a lot of them here in Canberra so you know by the time you pay for postage and everything else like it's a bit crazy really so we've moved away from that in terms of supporting joint charities or giving other experiences Mm. with my extended family it's more complex because I don't want to appear like the frugalista cheapskate (laughs) yeah I sort of you know started to make a few noises the Grinch yeah exactly started to make a few noises about maybe we could move away from it but when those habits are so entrenched it is really quite difficult so in that case I try and make a conscious effort to do things like supporting small businesses or to actually try and think about what they might actually like and need but it is a hard one too because it's it is a really hard one I like to also make gifts so I'll tend to for i like everyone in Melbourne in lockdown, I started going to sourdough making. So I now make sourdough <laughs> if I'm going around to someone's place for dinner or if I'm giving a quick thank you or I'll make biscuits or I'll do handmade cards and other crafts for people having new babies. That sometimes helps as well. And then also like having a chat with them about like what they need is also nice. But you're right, it's it's ingrained into our culture and it's just kind of gotten crazy. It used to be like a nice little box of chocolates, you know. Oh, yeah. Easter used to be an Easter egg and now... And Easter's turned into Christmas. You've got to have, like, buy the kid the bunny rabbit and then buy them the soft bunny rabbit and then give them, like, $10 for their piggyback. I'm like, what's going on here? No, my kids don't get that much. A lot of sugar, a lot of chocolate, but not that much. (laughs) I see a lot of – I declutter a lot after Easter with clients' kids as much as I do after Christmas. So, again, affluent treadmill. Let's kind of put the brakes on it. Turn it off. Yeah, very good advice. So now how can people reach you? I know you are active on Instagram. And you have a website? 
Yes, I am. Um, you can search Sally Flower. It's probably the easiest way to find me on Instagram. I'm under Home Sanct for Home Sanctuary. I also have our website, which is homesanctuary.com.au. And on there, you can sign up to our newsletter. And I'm writing out blogs all the time about consumerism, minimalism, and conmire method and tips to downsizing. So make sure you sign up to the newsletter at homesanctuary.com.au. And you can find me on LinkedIn as well under Sally Flower. I'm always around. She is very prolific in terms of what she writes and there's some great advice. So I highly recommend it. And so she understands how money works, not just because she's into minimalism, but also too, because she's worked in finance. So highly recommended. And make sure too, if you have enjoyed this podcast as much as I have making it, make sure that you subscribe, like, comment, tell your best friend, tell everyone. In fact, that would be fabulous. And also there's a Facebook group where you can connect with other like-minded frugalistas as well. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. I promise.